And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to the book of Esther. And as you turn to the book of Esther, uh, it's uh, really a fantastic book. If you kind of flip to the middle of your Bible, you'll hit the book of Psalms. And if you make a left turn, two or three books, uh, right before Job, you'll find the little 10-chapter book of Esther. And just by way of reminder, Esther is an incredibly uh, action-packed, suspense-filled, exciting book about how a Jewish beauty queen named Esther saved all the Jewish people in the Middle East in 486 BC, 483, somewhere in that range. It's a fantastic book. If you've never read it, uh, you'll finish it in one night. It's a very exciting book. So we're in the middle of that plot right now. Haman has just, in this fury, hatred-filled rage, decided to ex- uh, exterminate all the Jewish people all over the Middle East uh, in, uh, in Persia, uh, all the way from India over to uh, Ethiopia and to the edge of Greece, to Turkey. And so that's where we're at today. Uh, we're in chapter 4, and Mordecai is just about to learn of the plot to kill all the Jews. And my, uh, my main idea for you today, the main thing I want you to, to hear from me this morning, my main pastoral point is that God providentially allows us to come to the edge of ourselves, to a point of desperation, to a point of crisis, to a point of uh, utter rock bottom. If you're always protecting Him from natural circumstances, He'll never cry out to God. He'll never experience faith. He'll never see the end of His hopelessness if you're always there to clean up the mess. And, and you probably have friends or family members or maybe you're that person in your family that, that you've never experienced the natural consequences for your terrible decisions. Well, the idea today is that God providentially allows people to get to that place. And for many of you in the room, you're either there right now, you're at the end of yourself, or you've been to the end of yourself and you've cried out and you've found that Christ is an incredible Savior, a wonderful Redeemer that can deliver you from the pit, right? You remember Psalm 40? I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined me. He heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the miry pit. This is what God does. And this is where people have to get to before they look up and cry out to Him as the Redeemer. So I want us to see what happens when Mordecai and Esther learn about this crisis situation. So let's pray and we'll read Esther chapter 4. Father, we thank You for our time together this morning. We thank You that Your Word is sufficient and that as we read it, it, uh, it has the ability to change our hearts, to change our minds, and that even a book uh, written you know, 2,400 years ago can still be relevant to us today. It has been read and preached from over the last 2,000 years. And should you tarry, it will be read and preached from for the next 2,000 years. Different people will read this passage and it will have relevance to every time. And so I pray that you would show us where it's relevant to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's pick up. We'll read in uh, Esther chapter 4. It says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, 
That's that he learned about the plot to kill all the Jews because he refused to bow down to Haman. So when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out into the middle of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. All right, can you get that picture in your mind? This is just full drama. Did you see the guy? He's shredding his clothes like the Hulk, right? He's throwing dirt on his head. He's going out. He's, it's not enough to cry out in the middle of his room or in the middle of his uh, living room or he doesn't even go to his basement. He goes to the middle of the city with shredded clothes and dirt all over him and he lets out this bitter war cry when he learns about this plot. Cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Verse 2, then he went up to the entrance of the king's gate. He's looking for his cousin Esther because he needs his cousin Esther, who's now the queen, to know about this plot. So he goes up to the entrance of the king's gate because no one was allowed to enter the king's gate dressed the way he was. Right? He's, he's got dirt and sackcloth and he's mourning. So verse 3, in every province, we learned in the chapter 1 that there's 127 provinces that span India to Ethiopia to Turkey. So if you have that area in your mind. It's basically all of modern-day Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Israel, all the way down through Egypt. This is an enormous area. So in all those provinces, the king's command has gone out by Pony Express. The one writer would take the written decree, we're going to execute all the Jews in December. Man, woman, and child, every single one of them, we're going to seize their property 400 tons of silver is what Haman promised to pay the king in return for wiping out this entire group of people. Verse 3, so in every province, wherever the kings and his decree had reached, there was great mourning among all the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. I don't think, it's, I don't think we can get the scale of this. But at the end of this book, you're going to find out that there are thousands and thousands of people who are dead as a result of this feud between Haman and Mordecai. Their fury, their rage has spilled over and and caused this incredible mourning. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. I guess he's just just wailing and crying in the middle of this area, dressed like a nut job, just screaming his mind out. That's kind of how I'm picturing this. And Mordecai told Hathak all that had happened to him. And he told him the exact sum of money, the 375 tons of silver that was going to be paid for the Jews' execution. He promised to pay into the the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction so that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. 
So Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is only one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. You get the picture? This is the king, this is his queen. She hasn't seen his face in 30 days, which kind of gives you an insight into their marriage, right? Their relationship. It's very interesting. Um, She can't even go near him unless he invites her. And he hasn't invited her for 30 days. And so this this is the situation. She can't go in and warn him. It'll mean instant execution if he doesn't invite her in. Verse 12, so they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them, this is kind of in between, this person is going back and forth, right? He he said this and she said that, and he's the delivery guy and he's telling the message. And he told Mordecai what Esther said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, don't think to yourself that there in the king's palace you will escape any more than any of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise up for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days neither night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. What an amazing passage. You can just feel the crisis. You can hear the language of mourning and misery Sackcloth, ashes, this bitter, loud cry. He's wearing dirt and sackcloth on him. They're lamenting. They're laying in ashes. They're fasting, weeping all across the province. You can just see that this is a terrible, terrible situation. Have you ever experienced that level of desperation? Have you ever been afraid for your life? Have you ever experienced um, some sort of desperation? Maybe for you it was a financial crisis where you needed to make a lot of money fast. Or you were going to be in prison or maybe go be bankrupt. Maybe it was a relationship crisis where some relationship that you're in is in desperate times. Maybe your spouse or a loved one, uh, there is a rift of something that couldn't be put back together. I remember working with a guy at UPS, and every night he would go home, he would check the mileage on his wife's car to make sure that she was home all night. Uh, There was just this sort of severe rift in their relationship that there was always tension, there was always crisis. Maybe you're in a moral crisis like many uh, television executives and Hollywood folks who are just 
sweating every night, wondering if they're going to be the next to be found out, if their sin is going to find them out. Maybe you've been in some sort of a mental or emotional crisis where you're at your breaking point. Maybe there's some sort of emotional, mental issue that has just kept you and you don't know how to get out of that. Maybe it's a serious health crisis. Have you ever been in some sort of extended, desperate circumstance? Anybody? Yeah, a lot of you have. Maybe some of you are there today. Well, in all this, it's, it's a difficult chapter. And I'm going to ask you a hard question. Because we understand this. We understand that God is sovereign, right? The Bible affirms that. It presents God as in control, right? It presents Him as providential, that He orchestrates things, that nothing happens outside of His will and His purpose and His goal. So we understand that. So here's a good question. Why, why would God allow them to experience this sort of misery? Why doesn't God spare us misery? <laughs> why does He allow us to get to that point? I mean, He could have just snuffed out Haman earlier in life, right? Not to sound morbid or anything, but couldn't He have just, couldn't he have just caused a little accident for little Haman and something, maybe He gets knocked in the head and, and has a different future and he never, there's never this plot to execute all the Jews everywhere. Couldn't God have intervened somewhere else along the line? Why did he have to get to this point where now there are millions of Jews in misery? Couldn't he have preserved the Jews without allowing their situation to become so desperate? Isn't that a good question? Have you ever become desperate and thought, God, you could have changed things. This didn't have to happen this way. Do you remember the story uh, when Jesus learned about Lazarus' death? you remember that story? He learned that Lazarus was sick. And Martha and Mary sent to him right away, Jesus, the one you love is sick. Jesus is out near the Jordan River. He's baptizing. He's doing ministry with his disciples. And said when he learned that Lazarus was sick, because he loved him, he waited and he delayed. He didn't go right away. And his disciples picked up on this and they said, Jesus, he's sick. I mean, he's, he's, if we can go, we can get there and, and he'll be okay. And Jesus delayed. He didn't go right away. Then he went a few days later and by the time he got there, Lazarus was dead. The funeral was over. He was in the grave. His Sisters said, you know, at one point, it's going to stink if you open the grave. He's been in there long enough that he's dead dead. He's not, you know, he's, he's dead. And Mary and Martha said, Mary met him at the outside of the city and she said, if you had only been here, right? You could have done something. Isn't that the question we ask in a chapter like this? Why did I have to get to this level of desperation? Why did I have to get here? I remember a couple years ago, um, our church, this church, Ridgeline, had reached a point where all of our outside support had expired. We had this five-year term where other churches were supporting this church here on our fifth anniversary. Uh, we had been in existence for six years, but we had 
raised support around the nation for all these churches and individuals that would give on a sliding scale. And so they gave 100% year one and 80% year two. And they just made this commitment to allow the burden of ministry not to fall on the people in this room, right? We had a handful of people and we, it would have just been everybody in this room. So we got support and it supported, raised the, the ministry and the church and it helped allow us to do a lot of great ministry. But when all that was drying up and all the weight of our budget fell on the people in this room, and we had some growing pains. And we got to a point where there was no more money in our checking account to cover payroll. I hadn't missed a paycheck in five years. The Lord had been faithful to provide for my family every single, every two weeks, right? And there came to this point where we were almost empty. We had just enough money to cover Jess's salary. And we had enough to cover about uh, three-fourths of mine. And I said, just throw everything at it, and I'll take, I'll take a lesser salary this two weeks. And, man, it got hard. Um, I remember that on a Friday, we had $10 in our checking account, and we had no food. <laughs> Julie said to me, can, can I just take the $10 from savings and go buy some eggs so we can eat this weekend? I mean, it was just one of those moments where it was just desperate. And it was more than that. It was more than just financial. It was really a crisis of belief. Did God call me to do this? Was I supposed to plant this church or not? Did He not promise to provide for me through this situation? It was one of those desperate moments. And it was more than just about eggs and food, right? It was more than just about milk and stuff to be able to pay. It was about my calling, my career, my life. And so I set out that morning on a four-hour prayer walk. And I just cried out to the Lord, just walking and praying and seeking the Lord, and walking and praying and seeking the Lord, and just reminding Him of our situation and asking for clarity and asking for provision. And it was more than just we need some money today. It was, what am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? I've invested 10 years in theological training and seminary and 10 years in church planting and another five years in this church plant, all to see it go to nothing to get to this point where we're just going to close. And as I walked and prayed, uh, I got a, an email, I checked my email around 1 o'clock, and a friend of mine that I hadn't talked to in a dozen years said, hey, the Lord put you on my heart like a month ago, and I'm just now getting around to it, but I felt led to give you $5,000 for uh, your church and for just to cover, my hope was it would cover your expenses and your salary today. And it was in, I checked, and it was in the bank. It was already transferred through PayPal, and it was there. And at the end of it, I said, you know, I knew, Lord, that you were going to provide all the time. It never dawned on me that you weren't going to provide. It was always, I always knew that, but why did I have to get to a point (laughs) where I'm walking for four hours in the sun, and I'm praying, and I'm seeking your face, and is this what I'm going to have to do just to get a paycheck to go on these long extended prayer walks? Is this what the new reality is going to look like for me? And it was there that I sort of learned some insights into why God allows us to get to that. So if you're in a desperate situation and you're still listening, <laughs> thank you. Um, but let me just kind of shed some light on why, why some of those things happen. One insight is that we are extremely proud 
an independent people, are we not? Somebody said prayerlessness is your declaration of independence against God, right? You don't have to pray. And if life is going well for you, I can almost predict that your prayer life is slipping. But it's when you reach times of crisis. It's when you reach times of crisis that you realize how dependent you are on God. You need Him. You cry out to Him. You seek Him. You, you, you have to have Him. You need to hear from Him. And the hard reality is that we are a proud, independent, self-sufficient people. And we will take credit for anything good in our life, right? This is kind of humble brag. Oh, yes, the Lord's blessing. But really, you know, we know that we're kind of the ones sort of taking credit for things. Another reason, in addition to the fact that we're proud and we'll take credit and that God often interjects crisis so that we're dependent on Him in a healthy way, is that God's goals are completely different than ours. We desire maximum comfort, maximum ease. We just kind of want everything paved for us. Sure, it would have been convenient for Mordecai if Haman had just been obliterated, you know, 20 years ago. But God's goal was different. He's not in the business of just executing all your enemies so that you have a smooth road. Unfortunately, for many of you, that's, that's not the way it works. He's not going to get rid of the IRS agent that keeps calling you. He's not going to get rid of the credit card company. He's not going to eliminate your spouse or something. He's not going to do something to keep you in a smooth, comfortable place. And people, people go to him all the time like that. God's goals are different than ours. We desire max comfort. He desires maximum glory. We desire to be elevation, to be elevated, to be lifted up, to be given credit to. He is elevated. We want glory and credit for our own cleverness and our own salvation and the own way that we can work things out. But He is the one uh, that makes that possible. Somebody said that we contribute nothing at all to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. God desires to make Himself known clearly. In the end, He wants us to be able to say that it was only Him. Who else could have orchestrated a gift from 2,500 miles away on the very day that I needed it? Who else could have done that? And just to complete that story, the amount that I left out of my paycheck that Thursday that I didn't receive that Friday, a guy had been borrowing our garage for like two years And that morning, he felt led to come and bring an envelope. Because he didn't hear from anybody, he set it on my wife's seat in the van, and it was cash for the exact amount that I had left out of my paycheck. Why did all that happen? At just the right moment, in just the right way, under just the right circumstances, at just the right time. Who can get credit for that? Only God. It's only God that can do that. So let me close with this idea. God allows you, He's providentially allowing you to come to the end of yourself. He'll initiate a crisis in your life. And that's not pleasant theology. Right? It kind of forces your hand. Because you can either hate God and be angry at Him for that, or you can turn to Him and rest in Him and trust Him. What did Mordecai do? We're going to close with these three things that Mordecai and Esther did. What did they do in response? 
Number one, you see that they mourned. They emoted. They felt anguish. They didn't stifle their emotion when the bad news hit. And sometimes we want to calm down people and say, hey, everything's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We want them to feel better right away. Is that that's not just something you move forward from. And oftentimes for all of us, we don't want people to hurt around us. We don't want to let them experience anguish. We don't want to let them emote and hurt and mourn. And It's uncomfortable. Esther was like, just put some clothes on, man. I mean, you're out in the middle of the King's Square and you're screaming all night. And you know, you got sackcloth and dirt on your head. And she sends a guy with clothes for Mordecai and he refuses it. You know, it's okay for you to mourn. Your friends and family might want you to move on, to get over things quickly. You might be experiencing some sort of maybe postpartum depression or some sort of grief from the death of a loved one or some sort of financial crisis or in some way the things that you're going through, God does not need you or urge you to rush through that phase of grief. It's okay for you to experience a range of emotion and to live in that moment. You have permission to experience desperation. It's okay. The second thing that Mordecai and Esther do is they quickly count the cost. He approaches the gate. It's illegal for him to approach the gate. He's going to ask her to do something. It's illegal for her to do. Um, they're measuring the risk. They're measuring, the, they're calculating what this is going to cost. Esther says, it's going to cost me my life. Uh, Mordecai says, if I go to the gate and the, the way I'm dressed in the morning, it could cost me my life. They're examining the situation. I think what's most important about this is what they don't do in the midst of their anguish and their desperation. They don't self-destruct. You don't see them, well, we're all going to die. Let's just just go down to the corner bar and just get, you know, crazy tonight. They don't self-destruct. They take thoughtful, calculated, measured risks, but they don't resort to self-destructive behavior in the midst of their misery. Why? Because that doesn't help. You wake up the next day and your misery is compounded. It's worse. You, get your, you dig a hole deeper when you do self-destructive things in the midst of misery and grief. But they don't do that. They don't shut off their minds. They communicate. They're working together. They're talking. They're sending this poor dude back and forth and back and forth. And he's t- they're, they're over-communicating. They're thinking. They're counting the cost. And the last thing that they do that I want to leave us with is they respond in faith and hope. You see, it's, it's okay to experience grief. It's okay to be desperate. It's okay to have anguish. It's okay to be in crisis. All that's okay. You just don't want to stay there, right? At some point, you adapt to a new normal and you, you have to move forward. And so in the midst of that, they respond. They don't stay in despair and hopelessness because they have somebody who is worthy to call on. Right? They have a God who's eager to save, who's willing to save them. Think of what's at stake here. All of redemptive history is at stake in Mordecai and Esther. If there's no Jews, there's no Jesus. 
400 years later. If there's no Jesus, we're not in this gym today, right? I mean, we're not here. There's no salvation for us. If, there's, if Esther bobbles it right here, it changes the course of history. So they respond in faith because Mordecai, listen close, Mordecai knows that God is committed to redeeming people. And listen to what he says, verse 14. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise up for the Jews. What a statement of faith. I'm not worried about them. God's going to deliver the Jews. Deliverance is going to rise up. God's people, He's so committed to them that a guy like Haman can't exterminate the redemptive purposes of God. That's a statement of faith. If you keep silent, God's going to raise up another leader, another deliverer. Relief will rise up from the Jews for another place, but you and your father's house, that's him included, will perish. And who knows that God has not brought you to the kingdom for such a time as this? Isn't that a statement of hope? And a statement of faith. And then they're going to fast. And then next week we talk about the deliverance that God works on their behalf. Are you in crisis? Are you in anguish? Are you desperate? Have people been sort of a pillow to keep you from rock bottom? Sometimes rock bottom is the best place to be. Because it's at rock bottom that you call on God and you find a redeemer. A deliverer who is ready to rescue when you're ready to cry out to Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word that it gives us hope. It gives us hope in a situation when it seems hopeless. Thank You, Lord, that You don't speed us through a process of grief or anguish or emotional um, difficulties, but thank You that You allow us to work through those emotions and those times of crisis. But thank you more importantly that you are on the other side of those ready to pull us through the moment we reach the end of ourself when there's no other options and we cry out to you. Thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful, ready Savior, ready to deliver us, to save us from our anguish. Lord, we praise you for that and thank you that you love us in that way. Lord, I pray for anyone who's hearing my voice today that if they're experiencing desperate circumstances, that they would cry out to you and experience your salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.